talking about mighty to save, we're going to see a wonderful description this morning. But a description of Christ that we normally don't reflect on. Certainly during the Christmas season. So turn as we have continue our study in Revelation, our second study, Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. Remember, although in your translation, some may say the revelation of John the Apostle, really, the title of this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's how it begins. This is Jesus' revelation, his message for us to comprehend, to take in. Remember, there's a, spe there's a special blessing for those that proclaim this message and for those that meditate and take it in and... Um, ruminate, so to speak, over this. This message is the revealing of the finality of the coming of the victorious Christ. We will see that in glorious detail this morning, folks. He will restore a fallen world and deal with sin and finality. Even as we were reading from David this morning and some of these gruesome details of just man's fallenness, it makes us long for justice and righteousness true the holiness of christ and it will come folks and this book reminds us of that in glorious detail so with all of that it is incumbent upon us then to pay full attention to this revelation i remember as we interpret the visions in all of this there's many many different interpretations and we'll go through some of those i don't want to be us to be distracted by all of the different interpretations of this book because there are many. We'll go over some, and yes, I will even have a chart. And if you have, by the way, a favorite chart from the book of Revelation you'd like me to look at and consider um, to put out here for our people, I mean, charts aren't inspired, but they are a help in a book like this to help us to get the big picture of things. Um, I'd be glad to look at that. I've already had somebody uh, give me a book that they recommended as far as um, the content of Revelation, and I'm uh, hoping to go through that soon and looking forward to that. Um, but we're going to interpret these visions in the Revelation based on what matches actual reality and what does not, and we'll have opportunity to do that even today in this vision of the victorious Lord that John will see. And folks, we're going to see that we truly can proclaim our victorious Lord because he will give us the power. He will enable us to do so. So we don't need to be afraid to proclaim our victory in Christ. Sometimes we do get fearful. Or maybe we just are fearful that we really can't effectively serve our Lord. We've seen in the book of Colossians the admonition to know more and more of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we get to do that in the study of this book as well. But it's interesting, folks, I think the more we understand the holiness and the distinct nature of Christ and who he is, we can almost come away from that thinking, how can I effectively serve such an amazing Savior, my unworthiness and my brokenness? And we need a reminder that it's not through our own strength, but Jesus himself will enable us to serve him faithfully. We can't serve him the way that he deserves in our own strength. It's not possible. But we can through his strength. And I think that's what 
John wants us to understand as we see this vision of the victorious Lord. And let's read together chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, heard behind me a loud trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Father, thank you for giving us the information in this book that we clearly need to understand. And yet we see this description, this glorious, magnificent description of the Son of Man, and we marvel. And it seems strange to us. And yet we, for, we, we decidedly need this vision to remind us that our Lord is all victorious and he will win the day and he will defeat all his foes and make things right. So Lord, let us tremble in fear and awe, but also be encouraged in hope and joy that Jesus is the victorious Lord and he is coming. Let us be encouraged to proclaim him as such to this dark world. Let us be encouraged through this passage this morning for all this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We have here the vision of the victorious Lord. First of all, in the first verses 9 through 16, our victorious Lord has provided for us his message, his revelation. The victorious vision is given for us, for his church to proclaim. Uh, just a pause here for a moment. Is this on a little too loud? I'm sensing some ringing. Are we having trouble? Everything okay? Okay. Pause again so I can edit that out later. <laughs> Back to verse 9 here. The victorious vision that Christ has given to John for his church. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is the sole surviving apostle at this point. He's the last one. And he's making it clear that he is the official commissioned messenger for the vision, the revelation given by Jesus Christ. Now, John could have emphasized his authority and said, because I'm an apostle and I'm the last one, you better listen to me. But listen, interesting what he does. Instead of that, he emphasizes his own participation with his audience in the troubles in their earthly life. He's saying, I'm one of you. I'm your brother. I'm, I'm family. And I know that we're going through difficult times, through afflictions, through troubles, 
through difficult circumstances and difficult people. All of this can be described in that word tribulation, the idea of afflictions and hardships. He says, I'm family. I understand where you're at, and I partner with you in that. I am sharing your sufferings, and we'll see more of that in just a minute. I am going through these things, and why? Why do believers go through these tribulations and hardships? Sometimes Christianity is represented as you trust Christ and you have an easy life till the end and then Jesus takes you home. But folks, for true committed servants of Christ, we know that's just not the case. And John says, I know it's hard. Why? Because we're people of the kingdom. And he's reminding them that the reason it is because we're foreign entities, really. We're citizens of another kingdom. We have a better kingdom to look forward to, folks. But in this kingdom, in this, in the, in the kingdom of the ruler of this world, we're not going to be appreciated and liked in the way that we think that we should. But we do have membership and citizenship in a glorious kingdom that will be eternal and everlasting. And so Paul says, or John says, because of that, you can patiently endure all of those that are in Jesus. I am your brother, your partner in the troubles, but I also share with you the fact that you can patiently endure whatever difficulty that you're going through for the sake of Jesus Christ, because we're in Jesus Christ. We have his spiritual power. Remember in John, in uh, John's gospel, he talks about abiding in Christ. We're in Christ. We're in the vine. And that whole picture is that we have his spiritual power to be patient and long-suffering through frustrating circumstances, difficult people, and even great persecution. These folks were going through great persecution under this, this book was probably written in the 90s, anywhere from 80, 90 to 95. Another Roman emperor, Domitian, had come about who was very cruel persecuted believers, and John himself is being persecuted in isolation because of his ministry of the gospel. But he says, I know that you can be patient and endure great affliction because we have Christ. So whatever you're suffering through today, folks, remember, you have Jesus Christ. He can get you through but those that put their faith and trust in him, those that are in Christ, we can endure. Don't be surprised by the tribulation, but be readied and to ask the Lord for strength to get through that with patience, not with complaining and whining sometimes, but patient endurance. John knows he's being persecuted. We, he tells us of his current location at the writing, and, and as he was given this earthly vision, his current GPS location is an island called Patmos, and he's there exiled, isolated, because of the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Patmos is an arid island that's approximately 10 to 5 to 10 miles in diameter um, in area. And a commentary describes it as roughly 40 miles from the mainline, mainland of Asia Minor. In fact, um, for this today, and so you're able to place where the different churches are that are mentioned at the end of this passage, 
or at, in, in verse 11. I have a map right out here on the table as well for you to be able to see where all this takes place. I thought that'd be an extra benefit. For those of you that don't have that in, in the back of your Bibles, you can look at that. And it shows right where Patmos is, this little tiny island 40 miles from Asia Minor. And we'll talk more about why he was there in just a minute. But the point, what he is doing here, he is here because he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Regardless of what John faces, he is continuing just like he did in his gospel, you'll remember, to proclaim the word, the very word, that John describes in the first chapter of his gospel, Jesus Christ, the word, the very expression of God, who is God. And here he describes him as the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he's equating the testimony of Jesus with the word of God, because the truth of Christ is the word of God, folks. They're together. And the, and the Jewish people miss that in the New Testament much of the time. But the truth of Christ and his message is the very word of God, and that is what John continues to proclaim, regardless of his circumstances, even being exiled here on this island. He continues to give testimony for Christ. Well, what's he doing on the island? Well, it was common at this time for political prisoners to be exiled, um, to banished to islands. Why would that be the case? So their influence could be diminished. Well, you can't effectively proclaim, continuing to proclaim to hundreds, thousands of people the gospel of Christ when you're on an island all by yourself. And so it was useful in that regard. It's interesting. They could still receive supplies and visitors, kind of like Paul under house arrest. Um, they could still from time. And if you think about it, in order for John to um, get this letter, once he had finished writing it, to the mainland, to the churches, he would have had to have messengers coming to him, taking the uh, writing and taking it to the churches, then making copies of it. So he was able to see visitors, and he was able to receive supplies. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, probably wrote this letter um, as he, Christ told him to write down this vision in the early 90s. The reign of Emperor Domination, his cruelty was well documented. John finds himself, because of proclaiming Christ, exiled on the island of Patmos. Well, if you hear that and you're kind of thinking, hmm, solitude on an island with people still being able to visit me, I don't know, sounds kind of tranquil, might be kind of peaceful. Well, folks, remember, there was it was still a lonely place to be, but John had already been through quite a bit. In fact, one uh, commentator described it this way. It is said that the Roman emperor Domitian commanded that the apostle John be boiled to death in oil. But John only continued to preach from within the pot. Now, this is church tradition. We don't know for sure. But the church tradition says that John was delivered from that oil um, without any marks or any scarring. We don't know for sure. Uh, and another testament says another time John was forced to drink poison, but as promised in Mark 16, 18, it did not hurt him. Whether those are true or whether they're just um, exaggerations of things that John endured, the point is, is that John also suffered for the cause of Christ. And so now he finds himself on this island, and he is in a perfect location 
for Jesus to give him this glorious message. Then he's able to send it out to the world. So he continues to further describe in verse 10 his commission to record the message of Christ. And he describes it like this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And John is in submission. It shows his relationship here to the Holy Spirit. He's independent, and he's submitted fully to the power of the Spirit. Whatever the Spirit would um, show him, or whatever circumstances he would be in, he was submitted to God, to the Holy Spirit. And because of his submission to the Spirit, he was in a perfect frame of mind to receive this vision that Jesus was going to give him. Um, He's also the recipient of this vision of Christ. And he says here, the Lord's day, that would be Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which at this point, this last letter that was written um, in our Bibles at this point had now become the official day that the church of God, the church of Christ, excuse me, met together and worshiped together. And this now we have in this final uh, letter a uh, description of the fact that God's people met on the Lord's Day, and that continues today as well. Not on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath day on Saturday, but we meet on Sunday to remember Jesus' resurrection. And John is in the Spirit, and he's reflecting on the truths, even though he's not in church. He's in communion with God and worshiping him through the spirit in his heart. And whether this is a trance or some kind of vision through the spirit, he hears behind him a loud voice. And this was a commanding voice, like a trumpet. It was not, he was not able to ignore the power of this voice in any way. Even as we heard um, Rock playing the horn this morning, it's, it was beautiful, and we're thankful for that. But it's a commanding, powerful sound. It's hard to escape that. And, de- and John now hears this powerful, commanding sound that he cannot escape from. Um, and while he's here on this island, the voice calls to him to write all things down as he sees and send it to seven churches. And again, how would he do that? Through messengers that would come to him, visit with him, maybe messengers from those different churches. He was familiar with all of these churches because from what we can tell from church history, John ministered in Ephesus, even as Paul did, and perhaps even Peter many years before this. Before he was exiled in Patmos, on the island of Patmos, his main hub of ministry was Ephesus, And if you'll notice on the map, all of the churches described here, including Ephesus, are all surrounding. And in fact, some scholars say that this is described in a specific, um, a a specific line of description that is was kind of like a a uh, post office delivery um, circuit. But first, uh, 
a lot of times with uh, mail and things, it will be delivered to Ephesus and then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It was a well-known route of delivery for mail. And so uh, the voice also follows that same line as he describes um, that the this letter will go to those churches. Interesting. But the point is, is that these churches are a good representation of the churches that were back then and the churches that we have today. Now, some people have, scholars have over the past um, number, even hundreds of years throughout church history, have taken a different approach to this that I don't think is a good representation of what this is trying to say. You may have heard this before, but it describes the different churches and the letters to the churches that Christ has for them that John is writing down as different periods of church history. And they have the dates so that the church of Ephesus would present, represent one um, segment of church history right down to a specific date. And then Smyrna, the next um, representation of church history. And then Pergamum, the next period. And each of these churches then... Um, these letters would represent how the church as a whole functioned at that time. Well, that's, that is very creative. And I've heard that, especially when I was younger, taught many times, but that really kind of strays away from the practical um, directness that we have here. I mean, it's Jesus says this mess, this voice says specifically that John is to send these to real churches that were real at that time. And so, although creative, I don't think that's the best way to interpret that. These are actual churches that represent the same kinds of situations that we find in our churches today. And that makes it much more practical as we get into later on the different messages to the different churches. They apply to us as well. We're supposed to do self-evaluation as churches and say, which one of these churches best reflect our situation and what we're going through? and heed the warnings and the encouragement that Christ has to us personally, not to people throughout church history in different. Well, we're the church of Laodicea, so we don't have to pay attention to the other churches that represented the other aspects, the other dates in church history. No, all of these are important as we continue to look at the study. Well, this um, voice is so compelling and so loud that John is compelled to turn and to see who is speaking. We're going to see here the victorious vision um, is given for the church of Jesus Christ, but it also, the victorious vision portrays the powerful son. And look at this portrayal. It is majestic and amazing indeed. He turns and he sees, interestingly, seven lampstands. What are these lampstands? They could be referred to as the Jewish menorahs that were lit, the lampstands in the temple that had provided light all throughout the tabernacle and all throughout the different temples of Jewish history. These were portable oil lamps in God's temple, and these lamps provided needed light in dark places. And that is important to note, folks, as we find out the identity of these lampstands. They provided needed light in dark places. But then he notices beyond these lampstands, in the midst of the lampstands, is the one that commands his attention. A great figure is walking towards him. Are we coming in and out of these lampstands, moving around them? 
And it's an awesome, awesome, magnificent individual, a grand figure walking toward him. And he describes him as the son of man. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, robe and a golden sash around his chest. And this is the son of man that is the fulfillment of the son of man described in Daniel and Ezekiel. In fact, we're going to see as this description continues that this really is a fulfillment of what was described in the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and the coming of this son of man. Jesus himself enjoyed that title referred to himself as the son of man. He was reflecting. He was, um, he, he was identifying with humanity, but he was also identifying with the fact that this one would come predicted in the Old Testament that would bring judgment and would bring victory in his wake. And now he is come to John in a magnificent description here. And as we continue to read through, we need to understand, really these descriptions of Christ, the victorious Jesus, are symbolism. And this is where we talked about earlier, how we interpret. There are many of the uh, descriptions here that don't match our normal experience. And so rather than think of Jesus in reality as this, this is John describing and symbolizing because it's so glorious, this vision, and so powerful that he's having to use descriptions and symbolization to get across to us what Jesus is like. So think of these more as symbolism of the characters, the attributes of this victorious Jesus that are so amazing that John is literally unsettled by them. And we can imagine that that would be the case, right? And remember, when was the last time that John saw Jesus? Probably 65 years ago. He saw him as a suffering servant. The son of man that he saw at that time was fully human, ate, experienced the difficulties, the physical limitations that man experienced. He grew up from an infant, right? He suffered many things. He was crucified on a cross. Um, here was a man that he could touch, that could talk with him. And that is the picture of Jesus that John has in his mind. Even the ascension and Jesus in his new body was still different from this description. It's interesting, folks. This description many times isn't the one that makes the children's Sunday school or the Bible storybooks, right? We have the beautiful picture of Jesus on earth and his ministry, but this picture is unique and a little strange, but also wonderful. My point is, John is unsettled by this. It unsettles us as well, but this is a picture that we always need to have in mind when we think of Jesus Christ. Because we need to remember that he was victorious over death, that he was raised, and he will describe himself as that very soon. So here is Jesus in his unveiled glory, real, terrible, and magnificent. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his waist, his chest. This picture of a long robe was a, a 
was a Middle Eastern imagery that described great dignity and of a figure that was dignified and deserved great respect. And the whole thing about the golden sash around his chest, that picture of gold woven in, real it, it's all a picture symbolizing that this one coming towards him is worthy of all of his worship and respect and is fully dignified. This is the ultimate dignitary that deserves to be heard and paid attention to. And he goes further then. The majestic description continues. His white, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. We don't often picture Jesus with white hair. Strange to us. What's going on here? Well, white is a symbol. This isn't hard to understand, of purity. Jesus as pure from sin, sinless. It's the spotless lamb and that white hair. Also probably a picture of eternality. And the symbolism of his hair shows the purity and the eternal nature of Christ. And he turns then from his hair to his eyes, and those eyes are inescapable. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And that's really strange, right? Somebody with fire shooting out of their eyes? That's not the Jesus we know. Well, it is. But it's a symbol again. What is it symbolizing? That his gaze is his knowledge of all things. And as he's looking at John, John has a realization, as we all should, that folks, nothing escapes Jesus' gaze. He knows it all. He knows every attitude in your heart. He knows every deed that you've committed this past week. He knows any um, concerns or difficulties that you've been through. This one with the eyes of fire, his gaze knows all. Nothing is obscured from him. Description continues, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His feet seem as glowing hot metal. What would that have to do with? Well, we have other aspects. We have this described in Daniel and Ezekiel. I'll just read this to you real quick. Again, the fulfillment of these passages in the Old Testament. And I think that these descriptions in Daniel and Ezekiel are really appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Daniel, verse 10, 5 through 6. Daniel lifted up his eyes and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. That sounds similar. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. There we go. Sound of his words like the sound of the multitude. And perhaps John even thought of Daniel's prophecy as he saw this is the man that Daniel saw. And here he is in front of me. Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel 1, 26 and 27. Above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. And here now is the figure that is come again, that um, these two prophets describe. And 
surely John recognized that that was going on. But what do those glowing feet really represent? Well, take those in with what the Old Testament, what I just read to you, and it really symbolizes Jesus' ability to inflict divine judgment, that he is fully capable of bringing judgment, and he will come. And he will trample the enemy under his feet, under his burning, bright, pure feet. He is fully able to defeat the enemy and bring righteous judgment. And then finally, his voice was like the roar of many waters. And the voice of the word, all-powerful, a great tsunami of water. We've all seen the destruction of what floods and tsunamis can do. And folks, Christ is capable of that with his very word. And that is why he's described here in this way the power of his voice. Now that is a voice that you can't ignore. And that is why John turned the voice of this trumpet, the voice of mighty waters. Certainly John had to turn and see what was going on here. Um. When I was at Bob Jones University, as a ministerial student, you were required to have a local ministry that you met with uh, in every week. Um, and uh, each ministry student had to, was supposed to lead one of these ministries. And so I had a Wednesday night prayer or, or a Bible study prayer ministry in a, a local senior citizen's apartment complex. We met at the, the bottom of the basement, <clears throat> and I would teach. We would sing songs and pray and preach, and it was it was a nice time. Um, older folks, but greatly encouraged and thankful for ministry that we. And then when I got married, my wife helped me. <laughs> well, I had a friend who was at the university, and um, he had been helping me for a while, and he had this bright idea. He said, Brock, I'm learning how to play the bagpipes. And he said, how about if I bring the bagpipes and play at, at, at our little Bible study ministry? And I love bagpipes. <laughs> I enjoy them. And then I initially thought, that would be a great idea. Yeah, bring your bagpipes. Not really thinking through that like I should. And the fact that the room, the ceiling was was pretty, uh, it, it was, there was not a lot of room. There, it wasn't a tall ceiling by any means. There, it was a small room in, in a lot of ways. It seemed uh, it seemed larger than what it was, especially when my friend brought those bagpipes and began to play them in this small contained room. And I realized real quick that the only time I'd ever heard bagpipes before were outdoors or in a large auditorium, like uh, the Bob Jones University <coughs> auditorium there on campus. And that thing was loud. And I literally, I think I had to back up a couple of rows because it was just hurting my ears so much. And I thought, what have I done? These poor senior saints are enduring all this. And I looked around, for the most part, they're all like, <laughs> and I realized their hearing was a little bit more impaired than mine was. Now there were a couple that was like, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> But here was a loud, overpowering instrument that probably not just in, in the basement, but throughout the other levels of the building could be heard. It was inescapable, folks. You couldn't get away from it. Such was the power of this instrument. 
in a much greater way, the power of the voice of Christ is inescapable. You can't get away from it. He's victorious. He's all-powerful in what he says will happen, and he controls all things. And that's verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. We will see next week that these seven stars are uh, seven are the angels of the seven churches. I'll let you know what that is uh, next week. But this shows that Christ has full control over these angels of the churches, these leaders of the churches. And then this really strange picture that we see multiple times in Revelation, a sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is another indication that we don't take this as literal, right? When when it is described something that we've experienced and that we understand, then we take it as literal. But we have something like this. Have you ever seen, I don't think, somebody with a dangerous sword coming out of their mouth? This is symbolism, and it's important symbolism. A large two-edged sword powerful coming out of his mouth, and it describes the awesome, victorious power that Jesus has, the ability to overcome with his very words. Say it, and it's done, and the enemy crumbles before him. Folks, this is power. This is one that deserves to be listened to, and then the glorious light of his face is the very glory of God manifesting the deity of Christ. This is a figure that deserves our attention. And folks, this is one who has the authority to tell all of us what to do. And John realizes that, and we'll see next week. He saw him and he fell at his feet as though dead. He couldn't handle, he was totally overwhelmed with awe and fear. But Jesus would enable him with the very touch of his hand to revive and strengthen him and set him up for the task. Folks, the message that we have from Jesus today from this book, he des- it deserves our attention and it deserves our obedience. This figure is magnificent and glorious, and it is the one figure of Jesus that we ought to as well have in our minds. That he's victorious overall. We'll see next week over death. And he has the keys of death and Hades, and he deserves our attention. He deserves, he has the authority to ask us to do, and we should respond in submission to what he asks us to do. But folks, as amazing as this vision is, also be reminded that Jesus will enable us and help us to do what he wants us to do just as he helped John to do that. Let us keep in our minds this vision of the victorious Lord that should motivate us to want to serve him more faithfully. When we doubt, remember, he's worthy of our committed, faithful service. And he will also enable us to serve him well. He deserves it. He's God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man that will come and one day we will all gaze on him in in his victorious march over his enemies. We will marvel and we will be glad that he is our Lord. Father, thank you 
for this beautiful, uh, strike, striking picture of our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who will come with authority to deal with his enemies, who knows all things, who knows our hearts, even right now, whether we are committed, whether we are struggling, and he at the same time has what we need and we depend upon him to help us continue to go on. Or I pray that you will continue to give us <clears throat> hope that we have power to minister effectively and proclaim this very message to this world that you will strengthen us to do so. It's an awesome vision that causes us to tremble. And yet, as you did for John, you will steady us. You will enable us to proclaim Jesus Christ. We need that help. Even in this Christmas season, let us not just leave the babe in the manger, leave the Christ on the cross, but let us proclaim to people that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he will come victoriously and defeat all of his foes and make all right. Let us glory in that and proclaim that to a world that needs to hear it. And to do it confidently in the power of Christ as we ask him for his help. You promised you will give us that strength and we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, for all that we have in Christ and his riches. Let this motivate us to serve you well. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray.